Would you hear God's word from Philippians chapter 2? So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, and taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We have declared truths about Him. We have gathered around the Lord's table to declare that our Savior has died, knowing that He died and was risen and glorified to your right hand, O Lord. That you have highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And we pray that we would be among those whose knees would bow and bow willingly instead of bowing as they are made to bow before the greatness of the Lord. May we bow our knees to no other. May nothing and no one and no power or anything in this universe take your rightful place as first priority in our lives. May we worship you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, we can only do that if you Give us the faith. We ask that we might know what it means to worship you wholeheartedly. God, again, I thank you so much for these brothers and sisters that each one of us have the opportunity to gather with week in and week out. Thank you for those that maybe we don't see every week, but that live in different places of the province or just join with us online, Lord. And that as we gather to worship, we gather with the united body of believers. We pray that those who are joining with us online out of necessity would find themselves strengthened and encouraged by your word and by even being able to join virtually with the body here. But for those who are able, we pray that you would inspire in them a heart that would know gathering online is not enough, that we are called to gather, and that they would come and join with us in person again. Lord, we trust our brothers and sisters to you who are not doing well or feeling well. We thank you for the healing that we have seen from our sister Donna, that she is gradually feeling better and moving more ably. God, this morning we particularly think of our brother Niels. 
his wife Isabel and their family. God, you know of the faithful service that Niels has shown for your glory. And we ask that in your will you would heal him. Heal him completely, not only of the symptoms and conditions that are causing him so much problem right now, but whole healing, Lord. That he might be able to walk in perfect health. Lord, sustain his family. That even as they have spent so much time at his bedside in hospital and wanting desperately to see him recover, that you would strengthen them and give them peace. Lord, we also think of Lucille's brother, Victor. We thank you for the many of us that have also been praying for him. We pray that you would be with him and heal him. And God, there are so many others. There's so many of us who are in need of healing physically, emotionally, spiritually. And we know that you are the only source of true healing. Whatever it might be, that physical healing can only come from you. Even that that the doctors do and medical staff do, you are the one who makes it work. The only source of mental healing comes from you. Even going to counseling or psychologists or psychiatrists, Lord, you are the one who heals our minds. Our heart and our soul and our emotions, Lord, the healing that is required that we might have our affections rightly ordered and have the wounds that cut so deeply on our hearts that they might heal, that healing only comes from you, O Lord. And that nothing that we can do to dull the pain or distract ourselves from the pain that we feel in our hearts can have any real effect. We must turn towards you. So Lord, heal your people. May they seek you. that as they seek you, they might find themselves healed, but you would not just be a means to an end, but that you would be their first and foremost affection. And we pray that for our, the remainder of our service, that you would be the affection of our hearts as we come to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I confess that as I came to this morning's passage, I feel woefully inadequate. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 5, looking at verses 21 to 33. For those of you who are familiar or who are flipping there, you might want to look for the title of uh, Wives and Husbands. And I know that I am preaching to many in this congregation who have been married longer than I've been alive. For those of you that are kind of trying to like work that out in your head, I'm 32. So if you've been married 32 years or longer, you've been married longer than I've been alive. And here I am to preach to you on marriage. And I look at it and shake my head and go, how do I even begin? And then I remember when I first was called as senior pastor, the thing that kept coming into my mind when I would recognize going, I am not enough for this. The awareness that none of us are enough for anything that God has called us to, and particularly as we come to God's Word, one of the best places we can be in is going, this is not... Pastor Josh's wisdom. This is not me telling you what I think would be a good idea for you in your marriages. 
if it was just me telling you what I thought was a good idea, you would be more than welcome to throw those ideas out or take them. That's up to you. But this is not my wisdom. So I beg entirely to the wisdom that comes from the Lord and the wisdom that is found in His Scriptures. One thing I've learned as we've preached through the book of Ephesians is to love Paul's approach. What do we believe? And how then should we live? How does our faith, how does who God is and what He has done inform the way that we practice, the way that we live our lives? And always, Paul's eyes are on Christ. Throughout this book, we have the body unified in Christ. We grow together in Christ. There is new life in Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. We are to imitate Christ. And as we wrapped up last week's passage in verse 21, we found a transitional verse. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We have coming up in our book three couplets, three societal pairs. We have wives and husbands. We have parents and children. We have servants and masters. And all of that comes on the heels of what we read last week. Look carefully then how we walk, not as wise but as wise, unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is the end of that section that came before, but that also that verse is the basis of all three of these next couplets. Unlike many of those kind of pseudo-religious mantras out there, just be you, live your best life, speak your truth, whatever it might be, Paul doesn't leave us with a, okay, do this spiritual thing and... It's up to you to figure out what that looks like. Just, just be a good person or just be spiritual enough or just, just be a good husband. And He goes on and gives us some intensely practical ways what it looks like to live wisely. How we can understand what is right and wrong in God's eyes and in so doing submit to one another out of reverence for Christ doing all things for the glory of our Lord. So let's read together. Again, it's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21, and we'll go down to verse 33. Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." 
This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. My original idea, if you were to look at my preaching schedule, was to split this into two messages and do that for each one of these couplets. Message for wives, message for husbands, message for servants and masters, message for parents and for children. But as I was trying to plan it out and trying to do so, I found that to split it up in that way, it loses some of its one anotherness. There is a dependence here on the other half of the story. To preach to wives without preaching to husbands or parents without children doesn't work overly well, and God has designed these to be uniquely paired. And even as our passage explains at the end, this is doubly true in the marriage relationship, because in this situation, we have a relationship where two people legitimately are no longer two people but one flesh. Stemming from Genesis 2.24, which says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. How then can we look at the mutual submission and love to one another without including both the one and the other? And especially in this case where they are in a real sense the same flesh. Anyways, all that to say I'm looking forward to engaging with God's design for marriages this morning. And for those among us who are not married, this is not your invitation to drift off and find something to do on your phone or whatever else it might be. We don't have license to fall asleep. Just because you are not a husband or not a wife doesn't mean that you will never be a husband or a wife. So it's good to learn ahead of time, even what to look for in a spouse. And even more importantly than that, each one of these categories, this whole section is about so much more than the individual relationships that they are describing. This husband, wife, parent, child, servant, master, master, all of these categories, Paul is ultimately describing how we might better display our submission and reverence to Christ, something that we can aspire to and pursue regardless of our relationship status. These passages are teaching us ways in which we can worship our Lord. So if you feel like you're totally equipped in every way to worship our Lord and Savior rightly, then at that point, you can tune out. And you should see me after the service and teach me your ways because I want to learn from you if you feel like you're totally set on that. But otherwise, we're going to take a look at how the husband and wife can display their reverence for Christ as they submit to one another. So we're going to dive in. I want to point to one thing from that transitional verse in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want us to see that this is all for Christ's glory. We talk, talked last week about wisdom, how we can walk as ones who are wise and not unwise. And according to Proverbs 9, the what is the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of the wisdom. And this is one of those situations where I think in the interest of simplifying things and streamlining the process, some Bible translators go a bit overboard. We read, if we're in the ESV, that we are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. But the phrase in the Greek is phobos. It's the fear of Christ. It's the same word that we get the English phobia for, from. And 
I agree that reverence is a part of the fear of Christ, but it's so much more than that. If we look at mankind's reactions to Christ and Christ's teaching on these kind of things, Matthew 10.28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There is no idle fear and just simple reverence here. There's also that visceral fear of something that can can or would cause harm. There's this cocktail of awe at the greatness of God and the respect of His power, the reverence for His power and true fear, recognizing the wrath as we saw this morning, the wrath that was poured out on Jesus Christ on our behalf. If we are fearing Christ, it needs to be more than just a simple respect. We submit to one another out of fear for Christ. And as we do so, we follow His commandments. In John 13, 34, we're given that new commandment that we love one another just as He has loved us. As I myself, God the Son, humbled myself and became the lowest of servants, washing dust and feces off your feet, so you are to love and serve one another. And while these passages that we're going to look at, the husband-wife, the parent-child, the servant-master, they're intensely practical, but they all absolutely must come full circle to the worship, the reverence, the fear of Christ. And I also want to acknowledge that as we get into discussing how wives and husbands are to submit to and love one another, there are relationships where this is incredibly difficult and there are relationships where this is dangerous if not done rightly and even if it is done rightly. Some men and some women are outright wicked. Others try their best, but they, they don't believe. Others are deceived or misled by false teachers. And all of those situations, if we're talking about a marriage relationship, it makes things very difficult for a believing spouse to exercise their God-given marital responsibility faithfully. And... This passage doesn't give us an out for husbands, love love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands if they also do their whole job perfectly. So we have to deal with, well, what if the husband or the wife are not who they should be? Submission becomes much easier for a wife when she is well-led by a faithful husband who loves her as Christ loves the church. Christ-like love becomes much easier for a husband if he is married to a wife who graciously submit to his God-fearing leadership. And wouldn't it be nice if all of our marriages looked like this all the time? But we are all sinners in need of God's grace. That means that none of us at any point will have perfect spouses. There are situations of abuse and unfaithfulness and abandonment to deal with. As I was thinking about that and how it relates to our passage, I was taken to Romans 12, 18, which says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. But in marriage, this doesn't mean enabling sinful patterns of 
abuse. Many of you will be familiar with Martha Peace. The, she's a biblical counselor, and she's the author of The Excellent Wife, who we, many of us have read that book here. And she said it this way. In cases like these, cases of abuse or neglect or abandonment, the wife needs to pray for wisdom and fight back with overcoming evil with good. She will do this when she takes full advantage of the biblical resources that God has given to protect her, such as counsel from her elders in her church, church discipline of the husband if he is a member of the church and will not repent, and reporting what he has done to the police if he is breaking the law, such as battery of his wife or children. If a husband is asking his wife to sin, that includes her covering up for his sin, she is to tell him, no, that is not something that I can do. And Mrs. Peace is particularly women-focused, but I can apply just as readily to husbands who are in the same situation as well. So don't take what Scripture is saying here and what I'm telling you as saying something that isn't the case. We're not called as spouses, and I know this passage in particular has been one that has been used by generations of so-called Christian abusers to say, well, you have to stick with me and you have to put up with this because the Bible says that you're supposed to submit to me. We are not called to that kind of submission because our first submission is not to our husbands. Our first submission is to Christ. And it does nothing to glorify Christ to condone sin and to allow sin and to enable sin by allowing it to continue unchecked, especially in our marriages. So don't hear me saying anything in defense of a, an abuser or a life lived tolerating that kind of abuse. Because that is not what I'm saying, nor is it what Scripture calls us to. So that being said, our passage follows that tradition of ladies first. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And first I want us to acknowledge here the audience, the players involved. It's not saying all women submit to all men. It's not saying all wives Submit yourselves to all men or all husbands. It's wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And the language of this text is really clear and goes out of its way to point this out. This wife submits to her husband. It's kind of interesting. The language here, too, is such that it's her own husband. There's a level of possessiveness to this language which would have been unique in the day and age because husbands would say, that is my wife, but wives were not treated as having that same level of respect or value. So in that situation, the, the wives were the possession and the husbands were the possessor but this is her own husband. And Paul makes that even more explicit in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Women were expected to be more or less universally subservient to any and all men who would tell them what to do particularly so to their husbands. But this passage is saying, you, wife, are to submit to your husband. So it's, in a sense, limiting 
a woman's human submission, not to men in general, but specifically to their husbands. They are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And I'm looking at that as to the Lord, and there's a whole bunch of different connotations that can be drawn out on that. Is it like in kind as to one's submission to the Lord, meaning that our wives to submit to their husbands in the same way as they would submit to Christ? Is it like in scope to the one's submission to the Lord, submitting to the same extent and in the same situations as to the Lord? Is this submission like in purpose as one's submission to the Lord, submitting to the same effect as one's submission to Christ? I think ultimately, we can have all these conversations, but the real answer is yes. Too often we take passages and we try to nitpick them to the point where they don't say anything resembling the original message. There's nuances, but I think it's pretty clear that we read that she is to submit to her own husband as to the Lord. A nuance would be a wife cannot submit to her husband without question, as she does to Christ. Because the husband is not her first and foremost submission. She is submitted first to Christ, so she is to submit in all things to her husband's to her husband, but first she must, as it were, check with Christ, saying, what has Christ called me to, and is this a part of it? The language here of submission is about ordering oneself underneath something or someone. Think of it like the chain of command where a commanding officer is over and above those who are underneath him, and oftentimes underneath them there are further members, and all of them submit to the highest authority, and then the next level submits to the level down, and so on. A wife is called to submit utterly and completely and without reservation to Christ. Every single one of us is called to utterly and completely and without reservation submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then underneath that, the wives are called to submit to their husbands. And she does this, that she would bring glory to Christ. I found it interesting when I was looking at the language here. There's no verb in verse 22. We read, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But that's not exactly how it is written in the original language. That submit is not actually there. That submit is carried over from verse 21. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So if we were to combine 21 and 22 as the original language puts it, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. I don't know if this does for you what it did for me, but in my mind it really knit the purpose of these two verses together. From our message last week, the ways in which we use our time, they're all to lead directly to worship. And flowing from that unqualified call to worship our Savior through our submission to Him, wives are to submit to their own husbands. Not because the husbands are necessarily worthy of such honor, although starting in verse 25, we'll see that he is indeed expected to be so, but because of the wife's determination to glorify Christ. And the grounding of this command 
in the worship of Christ should help us to see that it's more than just a good idea. This isn't just one of those um, marriage sections in the local paper where ask Sally and Sally gives some good advice and we kind of decide, do we take this or not? This is not just good advice. This is a command of Scripture that is intended for the glory of God. She is to do this for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and as it is himself its Savior. And if that language rings a bell for you, it's probably from verse 15 of chapter 4, where all believers are told that speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So as Christ is the head of his body, the church, so too is a man to be the head of his wife. And as the head guides and directs and sets the course for the body, so Christ does for the church, and so the husband is to do the same within a marriage. Theologian F.F. Bruce said it this way, it is the function of the head to plan for the safety of the body, to secure it from danger, and to provide for its welfare. And the body, the wife, ought to be so led and protected by her husband as she submits to him. And on that, our eyes turn towards husbands. How can the husband, who is the head of the wife, so lead his wife as to plan for her safety, to secure her from danger, to provide for her welfare? Again, connecting right back to verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and down to verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This whole image of submission and love played out between Christ and the church continues between husband and wife. Christ did not come and submit himself to the church. He was not ever in a situation where the church had authority over him. Even in his own death, the Pharisees who felt like they had such authority over Christ that they might see him put to death, Christ tells us that he went and laid down his life willingly. Christ did not submit himself to the church. He was and is and always will be an authority over his people. And as we read from Philippians 2, we are each to not look to our own interests, but to the interest of others. And Christ, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Christ served the church, but he did not submit himself to the church. And we get this, we can really see this clearly in the washing of the disciples' feet. He did the job of the lowest servant washing literal feces off of their feet. Which is something who was in submission would do. But in the next breath, he washes their feet, he stands up, puts his cloak back on, resumes his place, and he says to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Christ retained his lordship even in his service of his people. 
Jesus did not order himself under. He did not submit himself to the authority of the church as wives are to do with their husbands, but he also did not lord his authority over his people either and say, all right, I'm here, wash my feet. He said, you rightly call me Lord. You rightly submit yourself to my authority. But then as I have served you, as I the master have served you, so serve one another. And us husbands in the room, us prospective husbands in the room need to take note of this. It's easy to read the wives submit to your husbands and as a man think, I got the better end of this deal. She has to do what I say. But look at what Christ did. Christ literally down on his hands and knees washing the feet of people who were so far beneath him as far as authority was concerned. Christ himself laying down his life, dying for these people who were so far beneath him as far as authority was concerned. So don't for a moment start getting up on your high horse and saying, well, she's down here and I'm up here. She has to submit to me. Like I said earlier, Submission becomes much easier for a wife if she is being well led by a faithful husband who loves her as Christ loves the church. And Christ-like love becomes much easier for a husband when his wife graciously submits to his God-fearing leadership, but neither of those is mutually exclusive. A wife is to submit to her husband insofar as she is able to given Christ's commands, given her submission to Christ, even if he does not love her as Christ loved the church. And husbands are to love their wives even if she does not submit to you as her husband. As Christ led his bride, the church, laying down even his own well-being, washing her feet, and dying to ensure her well-being by caring and leading and directing her, so too ought husbands to lead their wives. I've always loved this picture that Christ gives of himself and the church where husbands are to lead their wives in such a way that we might present our wives to the Lord who gave them to us in the first place, but we might present them more holy, more steeped in His holy word than they were when we got them. We are to love our wives. Our wives are to submit to us as their husbands, and that submission should lead to them being more holy, more Christ-like than when we got them. And when we take a look at the way that we are leading them, the paths down which we are leading them, we can ask ourselves, is this for my wife's holiness? Is this leading to me presenting her before God better than when I got her? I think of the parable of the talents where the one servant just gives the master back the one talent and he goes, this is the same as when I gave it to you. You at least could have put it in the bank. And then the other one who invested it, he goes, all right, I got my talent back and more. And God has given us husbands, our wives, and we are to give our wives back to God more holy and in better condition than when we got them. That does not come from idle leadership. Paul recaps this whole section in verses 31 to 33. And again, remember that we are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This interchange between a wife's intentional and fully orbed submission to her husband as to Christ, and a husband's sanctifying, self-sacrificing, servant-minded love for his wife as Christ loved the church, that combination provides an incredible and clear depiction of the present outworking of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Want to see how the church ought to submit to Christ and how Christ loves his bride, the church? Look at the faithful marriage of Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. See the way that she submits to him and is able to do so with joy because he so deeply and sacrificially loves her, placing her needs ahead of his own? Marriages are about so much more than just the people in them. Marriages are microcosms of the gospel and ought to be microcosms of the gospel regardless of who's involved in the marriage. And this whole conversation has been hijacked a million times over by people trying to define and qualify and quantify exactly how the appropriate gender roles worked. Okay, so who does the dishes then? Or who has to go and do the job out in the shop or any of that kind of stuff? Who submits to whom and how far? What does it mean for a man to love his wife as Christ loved the church? How far does he have to go? Does a man have to love his wife like this or a woman have to submit to her husband like this if their spouse isn't kind of perfectly pulling their weight on their end of the equation? And while there's space for those conversations, the primary thrust of this passage is that our marriage relationships are from both sides meant to be personal and corporate acts of worship where we point each other as husband and wife to Christ. And where both of us together, our marriage together, when people from the outside look at us, they go, that's the gospel. And we can use that. We can have a conversation. See how this goes? That's how this is supposed to go. And I would love to be able to say that I've done this perfectly, but I have not. I have not been perfect in my display of the gospel in how I've related to my wife, and I'm sure she would say the same. I love that verse 32. It made me scratch my head for a minute. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. And this idea of it being a mystery kind of made me go, where, where is this mystery here? And Maybe it's something that we miss in our day and age because we have had the gospel, we have had this new covenant in the blood of Christ for 2,000 years now. But up until the writing of this letter and just the years before it, for thousands of years, men and women had been covenanting with one another in marriage. And that's why it quotes from Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That had been going on for thousands of years at this point. And also just a side note, that Genesis 2.24 is pre-fall. So this marriage relationship, this covenant that God has instituted is a pre-fall, pre-sin institution. So it is something that was as it was meant to be. This isn't just a, okay, we're, we're instituting this now because we have sin, so we have to kind of establish some ground rules and boundaries. This is a pre-fall thing. But this picture of marriage had not yet come into focus until Christ came into the picture. Because think of it from a pre-first century Jewish person hearing this. 
how did marriage reveal Yahweh? How did marriage tell mankind anything about how to relate to a God that was so holy and so other that they weren't even allowed to look at him, much less interact with him on any real level? How can marriage tell us anything about God? We can't even look at it. Well, that mystery is all of a sudden in full view when it comes to Christ. God the Son becomes man. He comes and serves the church that he calls his bride. He comes to lead them in righteousness that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. He even lays down his life for her and his bride serves in obedience to her Lord's command and in gratitude for his care. We have this mystery that's never quite coalesced until Jesus shows up and then all of a sudden the light bulb goes on. How does our marriage tell us anything about Yahweh? And then we have God the Son coming to serve his bride, to love her, to care for her, to be a servant to her. And yet she is called to submit and obey his commands. And she can do so with no reservations because she knows for absolute certain that he has her every best interest at heart that his plan is good, that this direction that he is leading is good. And it is such a blessing. There's a reason why there's so many Proverbs that talks about the incredible blessing of having a godly wife. And there's a reason why I, by the constitution of this church, am not allowed under any circumstances to solemnize a marriage between an unbeliever and a believer. I can do a wedding for two unbelievers. I can do a wedding for two believers, but I cannot combine the two because I know that when I am combining those two, I'm combining oil and water. And that some part of this, what marriage is meant to be, is going to be missing. If the wife is an unbeliever and the husband is a believer... She is not going to submit to him as she submits to Christ, for she has not submitted to Christ. She doesn't know what that kind of submission looks like, and so right from the get-go, that's broken. And if the husband doesn't love Christ, and the wife does, she's called to submit to him according to Scripture, and she is still called to submit to him as they are married, but she's now submitting to one who doesn't, love Christ. And she is going to have to break that submission to him to follow her first submission, which is to Christ. And that is going to be broken, and that is going to be hard. And my prayers go out to the so many of us who have been in that situation, who knows the pain of being submitted to one or of loving one who does not submit or love Christ. And we as the body need to be there for such people. We need to love them. We need to pray for their spouses, that their spouses would come to know the Lord. That they would see that the Lord is the one who has set this whole thing out, who has created us to love himself. That we might be presented to him holy and spotless and without blemish. Paul urges his people to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is part and parcel of that. For those who are married or getting married or desiring to be married or have no interest in marriage, 
learn what it means to fulfill your role if you are married or were to be married. And that would be useless to you if this was just about the marriage. This would be useless to a person who is never going to get married. But it's not. Because that submission, that love, tells us something about our Lord. Tells us something about our relationship to Him. Because, yes, wives are to submit to their husbands, but they are to submit to Christ first. Yes, husbands are to love their wives, but they are to first love Christ. So this passage is not useless to anyone, no matter where they're at in the relational spectrum. In all ways, married, unmarried, uninterested, and otherwise, we are to seek to glorify God in our relationships. We are to seek to glorify God in every part of our lives. Worshiping the one who has first loved us by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And as we close this morning's iteration on this topic, we're going to come to our Lord in prayer. And as we come to our Lord in prayer this morning, and as we come to Him in prayer daily and constantly throughout the rest of our lives, be praying for our own marriages, be praying for the marriages in and connected to this church, be praying for the spouses and marriages of our children and our grandchildren. But the marriages are not the point. They are a point, but the primary thing that we ought to be praying for is that in all ways, Christ might be glorified in our lives, in every one of our relationships on this earth. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come before you this morning knowing that we have not submitted to one another as we ought to out of reverence for your Son, Jesus Christ. Knowing that we have not even submitted to Christ as we ought to. So we know that even coming from there, our relationships are not going to be perfect. So Lord, teach us what it means to submit to Christ. To lay down everything before Him. Teach us what it means to love Christ by showing us how Christ has first loved us. And Lord, I do pray for the marriages in and connected to this church. For the marriages that are to come in this church. For all the children and the grandchildren connected to this church that there are so many parents and grandparents that would pray for their spouses. That they might know what it is to glorify Christ in a God-honoring, mutual marriage that is utterly and totally submitted to you. That we might be utterly and totally submitted and in love with you. And God, I pray for those in our midst who are in marriages that, are, that this connection is broken. That one or both in the marriage don't follow these commands. Help them both. Help all of us to see the areas where we have failed in this way that we might correct our course. We might follow you wholeheartedly. that we might imitate Christ. God, you are good. You have not left us to figure these things out on our own. You have set down good designs for how we ought to live as mankind. And you have not done so just because it was 
expedient to do so, but you have done so for your glory and for our good. So let's not shun the commandments you have given us, O Lord. Give us hearts that would seek to obey you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Lord, take us from here with hearts inclined to worship you in every relationship, in every instance, in every aspect of our lives, may we worship you. And Lord, we thank you for the examples you've given us of good godly marriages. That we can look at those marriages and say, that is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. And Lord, we know that Many of us have lost loved ones, parents, wives, husbands, who so clearly displayed your gospel in those ways. And may those relationships continue to echo forward in time, continue to inspire us to love you better, Continue to inspire us to love our spouses better. We thank you for the cloud of witnesses that you've given us and that we see those personally here in Elk Point Baptist Church. Take us from here and may we fall ever more in love with who you have revealed yourself to be in Scripture. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.